Greetings, everyone. My name is Peter D. Auger, and this is episode four of Y2K and Autobiography. What we're going to focus on today are the Y2K failures, the ones that we had before the year 2000, the ones we had during the year 2000, and the ones that we continue to have today in the year 2020. Now, it was not my original plan to do this at this point in the series. I was leaving the recap of the problems and everything to the end. However, I must admit I was a little bit surprised, disappointed, surprised, frustrated when we started to have Y2K problems the beginning of this year. And while they were reported as Y2K-like problems, the reality is that they were Y2K problems that were occurring. Now, during this episode, what I'm going to be doing is giving a litany of the, the many different problems that occurred, the Y2K problems that occurred over the years. So it's going to be basically a list of them and some commentary for each one of the problems that we're going to talk about. Now, I could have drawn all the references from my collection, my archive of records. I have dozens and dozens of boxes of magazines, newspaper clippings, etc., etc. But if I did that, then you would not be able, you, the listener, would not be able to reference these things yourself. So what I did was I drew on a resource that exists out there that I had used from time to time, and it's Peter Newman's Risks List Digest. And if you go on to the internet and you Google for risks, lists, digest, you'll find a database where people from all over the world, computer programmers, system developers, technicians, have reported computer problems over the years and they're searchable. So unless I pointed out, anything I'm talking about today will be searchable in that database so that you'll have firsthand record of what it is I'm referring to, so that you don't say, well, Peter, you know, you talked about something, what's the reference? Well, this is the reference, that risks database. Now, we're going to talk about some of the problems that occurred way before Y2K, and it had nothing to do with Y2K. To give an sense, a sense of how computers fail, and what causes them to fail, and what happens when they fail. Let's choose the one that everybody gets excited about, shall we? Nuclear power plants. And around 1990, we had a software problem at a Darlington station in Canada, Bruce Nuclear Station. And what happened is thousands of liters of radioactive water released into the environment. They were doing a test, there was a glitch, and we started spilling radioactive material into a stream. Now, what type of problem was it? Who knows? You, you never get the really tricky details of what went on. I've used computers all my life. Now, there was one particular problem I had that took me about 40 hours to solve. It was a single line of code that wasn't doing what I thought it should be doing. It took me 40 hours to, to solve it. Now, if I were to explain what it is what was going on, that would take me about 10 hours. And by that time, you'd know everything that I knew about my personal computer at the time and the tools I was using and the utilities I was using, and you'd be bored to tears. So all I tell you is I had a computer problem that took me 40 hours. You don't get the details. Same thing happens with any one of these news reports. We know there was some type of software problem at this nuclear power station. And we know that the result was radioactive water was released. That is not insignificant. What else could happen? Your imagination is the limit. Who knows what could happen at a nuclear power plant? We don't know until, of course, happens. And now we have an example. Well, this could happen, and it's not hype. It's not fake. This is recorded. It's part of the public record. So that's one problem. Another problem we had, and this one is fascinating, Library of Congress back in 1987, they had their entire database, not on hard drives and all the rest, they had their entire database on tape drives, tape drives produced by Storage Technology Corporation. The mainframes they were using were IBM and Amdahl, and it was a rather impressive IT in, in installation. So impressive that the BBC wanted to come in and do a documentary. 
So the, the BBC comes in and they set up on the computer floor, you know, all their cameras and lighting and all the rest. And everything's going along fine. And all of a sudden, everything stops. All the tape drives stop working. They stop, they rewind, and then they unload. And what we mean by unload is the glass screen in front of the tape drives drops down. And basically, the computer is telling you, take those drives off, we're done with them. When it does that, the entire system crashes. Because it's not just one tape drive that's going down. It's a whole row of them. And the mainframe, the IBM or Amdahl, has no idea what's going on. Well, what's happening? Well, it's an intermittent problem. It's not happening all the time. But at some point during the BBC documentary, they're taking still photos. And when they take a still photo, they're using a flash. And sometimes when the flash is just angled right at the tape drive, the light bounces in, bounces back into the sensor that's reading the tape drive. It's read as a data exception, and the tape drive stops. And the computer thinks that something has seriously gone wrong. I have a data exception. The tape is no good anymore. So stop, rewind it to the front, and then unload that, please and thank you. They didn't know what was going on. That's a computer problem. Now, you could say, well, Peter has got nothing to do with programming and all. Yeah, but it's a computer problem. Someone flashes a light and the computer dies. Unless we know that, unless we, we know that this could happen, we can't take precautions against it. So it's a glitch, <laughs> a glitch in the matrix, if you want. Now, this happens. Extraneous events to a computer can cause problems. Every second of every day for all of eternity that we've been here, about 100,000 high-energy cosmic particles hit every square meter of the Earth. If your computer happens to be doing something at that particular time with a particular particle coming in, and you're accessing a particular piece of memory, the physical aspect of the memory, it could lose a bit of data. And you'll have an intermittent problem. It's temporary, but it can happen. This happens rarely because everything just has to be right for it to go wrong. <laughs> I like that. But it, it does happen. What you might want to do is read up on something called the Carrington event. This happened in 1859. Basically, it was a solar storm, the likes of which we'd never seen before, at a time where it could actually have an impact. Prior to that, prior to 1859, there were no electronics around. So if you had a big solar storm, OK, you get nice, bright, shiny lights in the sky. But nothing significant happens. In 1859, something significant happened. It interfered with the early telegraph machines and caused a breakdown in telegra sending telegrams around, you know, Morse code. The, machine, the machines, the wires overloaded, burnt out sometimes, other times just caused problems. If that were to happen today, if we had the same sort of storm today, this BBC, this Library of Congress example, would be trivial compared to what would happen. Basically, we would lose every satellite. We would lose all GPS. We would lose all cell phones. We would lose all, most computers. Your car would die because the EMP, the solar flare, would overload the computer systems, all the electronics, and they would burn them out. If you wanted to read a reasonably good book about this, there's a book called One Second After. It's about an EMP, electronic, um, electromagnetic pulse. Um, it's a form of weapon. The author of the book is William R. Forsten, F-O-R-S-T-C-H-E-N. William R. Forsten, and the title again is One Second After. To give you a sense of how vulnerable our systems are, to not only flash bulbs going off near a tape drive, but a solar flare. Let's move on from that one. We had, uh, someone's going into a hospital, 1997. To the best of our knowledge, this is not a Y2K problem. And they're checking in at around midnight. And as ch this person is checking in, there an alarm goes off. And the person doing the check-in process 
has a mild profanity and said, oh, here we go again. And it was basically the stroke of midnight. And she reports to the person trying to check in that this happens every single night. At the stroke of midnight, our system fails. It crashes and it goes out for about 15 minutes. Uh, it takes that, that long to reboot. The thing is, the, the interesting thing about this particular situation is that they've grown used to this. It's become the norm. Now, if you're in a hospital and you're in the ICU and the computer is going out at midnight for 15 minutes, let's just hope that whatever you're depending upon isn't relying upon that computer to be up and running while you're in ICU. Computer problems interfere with normal processes. Computer problems can strike at the worst possible time. And we all know about Murphy. This is an example. When the person was relating this particular story, they did not mention that anybody ever died because of it. There was no indication of that. Um, they were lucky. Because if the system is going down and you depend upon the system, anything can happen. The next story is peculiar to say the least. And I'll be honest, take it with a grain of salt. I've done the best checking I can, but I can't really get a definitive indication as to whether or not this story is real. It's about the company called Montgomery Ward. And the, the story goes is that there was a distribution center in their network. And the idea of the distribution center is a warehouse. So trucks are coming in, they're dropping stuff off, they put up on the shelves, and then they go back to the distributor. Trucks pull up from the store, they load up what the store needs, they go out to the store. So basically it's a clearing center for inventory, and it's one of many. Well, in 1989, there was this peculiar sale that they had. In 1989, they had a sale for items that were three or four years old that had never been used. It was old inventory, and they had this huge sale to get rid of it. So someone asked, well, why do you have that sale? Why do you have so much stuff that's three or four years old that's never been used? How did that come to be? And it turns out around 1985, they reprogrammed their inventory control system, their logistics, their distribution system. And somehow, this particular warehouse got dropped off the list. So trucks being sent to warehouses never got sent to this one anymore because it wasn't on the distribution list. It wasn't on the logistical network. So it was just cut out. And at the same time, no trucks were being sent there to pick stuff up because it had been dropped off the distribution list. So one day you're working at this warehouse and all of a sudden the, stuck, the, the trucks stop showing up. Now, during the first hour, you wouldn't notice that. Not necessarily. Trucks aren't showing up every minute. So maybe trucks don't show up for a couple of hours. Who cares? Next day? Okay, no trucks today. I wonder why. Well, maybe there's a hang-up in shipping. And the story goes, and this is where it gets a little bit ridiculous, is that this continued for three years. Everybody's showing up. They're moving stuff around inside the warehouse to, to look busy. They're still getting their paychecks. No one bothers to phone anybody to find out what's going on. And for three years, they just wander around the warehouse. It sounds like something out of the Twilight Zone until someone figured out what was going on and put them back on the network and they were back up and running again. Like I said, a little bit suspect, to say the least. I can't imagine being in a situation where no one's going to phone head office and say, you know, why aren't we getting any trucks anymore? But the idea here is that simply if an address is lost in a computer system, everything that was at that address is also lost. Now, we see examples of that all around. If you've got four or five hard disks hooked to your computer, and one of them gets disengaged somehow, and you don't notice it, it could be lost to you for several years. You'll, you'll never know it's not there, because your com computer doesn't see it anymore, and you may have forgotten. This is just four to get us started. These are problems that occurred before Y2K, and they had absolutely nothing to do with Y2K, but they demonstrate how computers can fail in, in a myriad of different ways for, for very, very strange reasons, and for different reasons. 
Y2K was introducing a, a single type of error into our systems, and it too demonstrated itself, presented itself in a variety of different ways. There was a storm on the horizon we could predict it. We knew that in the year 2000, or more precise, when your programs start dealing with year 2000 data, there would be problems. So, were there precursors? 1990, guy goes into a hospital. The guy's 101 years old, and he's getting some blood work done. And the diagnostic program comes back and says, your blood count is fine, absolutely okay. There's nothing wrong with you. And it turns out that the computer program couldn't figure out how old he really was because of a Y2K problem. Uh, if he was 101 in 1990, when was he born? He was born in 1890, 1889 or something. And when it calculated how old he was, he says, well, you're a baby. And for a baby, your blood count is fine. And there's obviously a problem. What is fine for a baby is not fine for a 101-year-old man. Now, if you're a doctor and you're sort of paying attention to exactly what the report is saying, if you're actually reading everything and not just everything is fine, but you're actually reading and figuring out it's saying everything is fine for a two-year-old or whatever the situation was, then you could quite possibly discharge them, not give them the necessary medication. The person walks outside and dies. Why? Because you haven't taken care of the ailment. Why? Because the computer told you everything was fine for a two-year-old, but it kept the two-year-old part to itself. If the diagnostic report was being sent straight to the pharmacy and saying, well, prescribe the drugs appropriate to for this particular situation, the person reading the report would just do that. They wouldn't interrogate the report. If it comes from a computer, we tend to accept that it's valid. It's an assumption. It's a reasonably good one, but it's a bad one in this particular situation if your computer program is not giving you the right information. Now, one of the earliest uh, precursor problems that we found, well, one where the event horizon was reached really early, was the Scottish Widows Bank. And they were one of the few banks that were offering 30-year mortgages. So in 1970 timeframe, when they were starting to issue 30-year mortgages, they noticed problems because the closing date of the mortgage would be the year 2000 or the year 2001, which they would be saying as the year 00 or the year 01, which the computer would be interpreting as the mortgage is due in 190 or due 1901, which didn't make any sense, caused them problems. The banks were actually lucky. They started to encounter Y2K problems 30 years in advance. And the moment they started to encounter these and they started to encounter the problems caused by this, they started to work on their Y2K issue. Now, true, what we tended to do is only work on the ones that were beginning to fail. There were no large projects initiated throughout the entire banking system that says, okay, this is coming, we need to start fixing it. They were only fixing the ones that were entering the event horizon early. But we were seeing this stuff early, and it was causing us problems. Bottom line again, and this is going to be an important theme throughout this presentation, is that if we had not fixed it, then we, could, we would have had to have stopped giving out 30-year mortgages. In other words, the problem had to be fixed. We demonstrated that the problem existed. We had to get rid of it. So when someone says Y2K was nothing, there was no problems, well, then explain what's happening at the Widow's Bank back in 1970. If the problem doesn't exist, why are they having a problem? Okay. This one happens over and over again. A gentleman is, this happened in 1986. Someone has a driver's license. The guy's 101 years old, and he gets his driver's license premium for a particular year, and it triples. 
Last year it was $100, this year it's $300. It's more likely last year it was $2,000, and this year it's $6,000. But the idea is all of a sudden, for no particular reason, his insurance premium triples. Why? Well, once again, the computer is assuming, based upon the dates it's using and how it's interpreting the dates, that he's not 101 years old. He's a teenager. And insurance policies and insurance premiums for teenagers are much, much, much larger than they are for old men who have been driving all their life. So this is the type of thing that was happening all over the place. One of the problems, you can create sliding windows. We talked about that in an earlier presentation, the earlier episode. We can talk about sliding windows for a wide variety of things. However, we can't do sliding windows too well for people's ages birth dates, death dates. Why? Because we are living over centuries. We are living more than 100 years. So there is no gap where we can apply the sliding window technique to solve the problem. We actually have to go in somehow and figure out how to encode the century. And a lot of systems didn't do that. Next one's interesting. It has to do with automated systems. Grocery stores, large grocery stores, anyone who deals with food, have gone to automated systems. That's what we do with computers. We, we automate everything. That's the tendency. And what we do is we hand over control to these systems. Well, one of the things they handle are automated disposal systems. In other words, when someone has passes, something has passes due date, well then tell the inventory system to move that to the side and the next truck that's going to the dump, uh, put the stuff on the truck and then dump it at the dump. Why? Because it's past its expiry date and we can't use it anymore. And this is all automatic. Understand what automatic means. It means that when you're the dump truck driver and you pull up at the warehouse, you're going to ask, you have anything for me today? And the warehouse people said, yeah, yeah, uh, the computer has put this stuff over there on that shelf. Go pick it up from that shelf and put it onto the truck. No one is questioning why the computer is doing it. No one is saying, are you sure the computer is doing the right thing? Oh, it's on the shelf. I'll take it, put it in the truck, and I'll send it off to the dump. This was actually happening. Again, a shorter event horizon. Whatever it is that they were sending out, this happened in 1997. So if something had a four-year expiry date, then in 1997, the expiry date would show, be showing as 01, which means that it's 1901, based upon how the computer is interpreting the date. And if it's 1901, it's now expired by 96 years. So send it to the dump. And this happened several times until someone noticed that this, this stuff just came in yesterday and now it's on the expiry shelf and now we're going to send it to the dump. This, there must be something going wrong with this. And they looked at the computer system and sure enough, this is exactly what was happening. He was misinterpreting the 01 as 1901. It has been expired for 96 years. And this is what happens when we give control over to computers. Someone would say, well, you know, Peter, that's not a big Y2K problem. Well, it is if you're buying inventory and then immediately sending it to the dump. And no one catches it for six months, like the warehouse that was shut down for three years and no one noticed. Okay. There is, a, <laughs> I like Murphy. And the word in, that I stumbled upon, which basically says, when you mess things up by trying to fix them. And it's a German word, because the Germans have a word for everything. And if they don't have a word for something, they'll make one up. And the word is, the word for today is verschimblessen. Verschimblessen. And it basically means when you mess things up by trying to fix it. And Y2K had a whole bunch of those. We were very, very good at messing up while we tried to fix things. One of the ones I know, because I go to Dublin quite often, I'm off to Ireland, I was not born there, but I was raised there, and I'm an Irish citizen, is that they were trying to fix a problem that they found in the traffic light system. So they installed the fix in Dublin, and what happens is, is that all the traffic lights stopped working. 
because of a glitch in the fix that they were trying to fix. This happened on September the 29th, 1998. Now, they said it caused bad traffic. Now, I've traveled in, I've traveled in Dublin. How would anybody know that the traffic jam was different from the one they have every single day? I'm allowed to pick on Ireland. I grew up there, and I love the place. But this was a fix. That they found a problem. Understand one thing about Y2K is that we didn't fix things. We weren't in fixing code that didn't have problems. In other words, if I go in, I'm looking for the dates, and I, saw, I see no issues with how the dates are working, and there won't be any Y2K problems, then I don't go in and fix anything. I go in and try and fix something when we do a demonstration, we do a test run, and lo and behold, zero, zero actually causes us problems. So that's when we go in and we try and fix it. They went in and tried to fix it, made a mistake during the fix, and the situation was that they had a, a traffic light blackout, if you want, for a couple of days, a couple of hours. Um, that's all it takes to mess up a city, especially like Dublin, where they have not a single straight road in the entire city. Okay. This happened. And again, if they hadn't fixed it, that would be the norm, which, as I've alluded to, is sort of the norm anyway. Large organizations that are using Y2K system testing, this happened a lot. When you do large systems testing, if you don't have a standalone machine, what you're trying to do is work with existing data sets. Uh, you make some changes. And after the test, the idea is that you roll back the changes so that you get back to where you were before you started doing the test. Large organization goes in and they do a large test. Everything's working fine. They heave a sigh of relief and then they switch back to production. But during the switch back to production, what they don't do is take out the contaminated zero, zero data. In other words, during the test, they were creating false, fake data sets in order to test Y2K. And whatever the test results were, they were what they expected. Maybe they found stuff, maybe they didn't. But when they revert back to production mode, they didn't take out the test data sets. And when you put the test data sets into the normal run, into the normal production system, everything failed. So again, they're trying to fix something, and by trying to fix it, they mess up the production runs. The IRS had a great problem. They identified, they, do, they were doing some small tests. This is happening in 1998, January 26 timeframe. They're doing some Y2K testing. They've identified a number of accounts that they're going to be using for the test. They do the test, I'm just putting the zero, zero in to see what would happen. And they didn't disengage some of the things that happen when certain things happen in the system. For example, they didn't disengage the notification procedures that when you are in arrears on your tax payments, that it sends out a bill. It sends out a warning notice, a dunning notice. So they've identified 1,000 taxpayers. They're messing around. They're doing the test. And those 1,000 taxpayers received a notification that they were 100 years in arrears. Now, this was not so much a test that went wrong, but it was a test that illustrated that if they didn't fix this, all of the millions, hundreds of millions of people in the IRS system would have received this notification that there are 100 years in arrears, that they're overdue on their taxes for 100 years. And if you know anything about the IRS, the interest on being overdue for 100 years is going to be significant. This only went out to 1,000 people. In other words, this system was in, this bug was in the system. It shouldn't have happened that these taxpayers received this notice. That was a mistake on their part. But again, the point was, if they hadn't fixed this, then the IRS would have been sending out your inner arrears to hundreds of millions of people in their database. It's relatively easy to fix a thousand situations where a taxpayer has received a bad notification. It is entirely a different problem when 300 million people have received that notification. 
This was both a fix that didn't work and a test that identified that they had a significant problem. If they hadn't fixed the problem, the IRS system would have been broken. I know, celebration time. Uh, to give you an idea of how big the problem was for them fixing, they had 62 million lines of source code to fix. Okay, And that was the size of the IRS problem for that particular part of the IRS function. Okay. Here's a cute one. Uh, I like this one. There was a wine broker around 1998. And they'd sold a bottle of Chateau Margaux, 1900. That's when it was bottled. And they sold it for 12,000 US dollars. Nice bottle of wine. I have some cheese. Nice bottle of wine. When they entered it into the system to record the sale, they'd modified their assisting program to some degree. And basically, they'd said, okay, this program is now Y2K compliant with one sort of thing they overlooked. The bottle was bottled in 1900. When they tried to enter 1900 into the system, it refused point blank to do that. And it says, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to fool me. So I'm going to enter the 1900 as the year 2000. So their system recorded that they sold a bottle of Chateau Margaux, year 2000, for 12,000 USD, which is a little bit overpriced. Some of the Y2K problems that we encountered were trivial, to say the least. I mean, they're, they're comical. And no one really cares if uh, a fancy bottle of wine is incorrectly listed in a database, except, of course, for the owner. I mean, they're concerned. That's a $12,000 problem for them. But for the rest of the world, it's a bit of a joke. It's something you tell over a dinner. Now, on the day, the, the myth is, is that nothing happened. I mean, that's the thing you'll read. All the little snarky articles that you've been reading the beginning of this year all pretty much said, you know, Y2K, ha ha, what a joke. You know, the world didn't end. Nothing really happened. It was all a farce. Well, that's not true. I, to use the common phrase these days, that's fake news. The reality is we had problems. There was a trucking billing, billing system, and they were receiving all types of problems. They're all very familiar to us by now. They were receiving bills that stated they were 100 years in arrears. Again, very common mistake. They received interest payments on accounts, and they were getting 100 years worth of interest rather than one year's worth of interest. And sometimes, it, because of the negative sign not being stored correctly, they were having 100 years of accumulated interest removed from their bank account, not added to it. And we explained that, I think, in the second episode, where sometimes the negative, when you're su subtracting uh, 99 from 00, zero it either shows up as 99 or shows up as minus 99. If it's 99, then you're getting 99 years interest. If it's minus 99, minus 99, then you're having 99 years of interest removed from your bank account. Now, again, if this happens to a handful, a couple of hundred people, it's relatively easy to fix. If it's happening to hundreds of thousands of people, then you get a ripple effect. If you take out 100 years of interest out of my account, then I'm overdrawn. And when my insurance payment comes due, and that's an automatic withdrawal from my account, and if I don't have the money in my account, then my insurance premium isn't being paid, and they cancel my insurance. Then I get into an accident, and I don't have insurance. Now, how do you fix that? How do you unravel that when it's happened to hundreds of thousands of people? And it can't be handled by a single program going in and figuring out what to do. Because each situation is going to be unique to the individual. 
Some people will have too much money, some won't have any, some things will have bounced, there will have been accidents in some situations, no accidents in others. Other people might have been overdrawn 20 different times for 23, 20 different automatic payments, and the bank then says, well, you're overdrawn, we're going to have to charge you a penalty. So how do you reverse all of that? Put it back, put the genie back in the bottle once it's all happened. This happened on the 7th of January, 2000. Here's another one, a little bit more significant. A late registration fine of $378,426.25. Someone registered at the right time, computer does the calculation incorrectly, and says you're 100 years overdue, and here's the, the fine that you're being charged. And if you've ever tried to contact a bank or an insurance company and tell them that they've either charged you too much or not done enough, uh, it's like fighting City Hall. It's insane. Every now and then, someone will deposit money into my account, uh, unbeknownst to me. It's not a bill being paid. It's not a speaking fee being given. It's just, it's been deposited into my account incorrectly. It happens often enough. I keep an eye on my account. Rather, my wife keeps an eye on my account. She tracks this stuff. In the beginning when it happened, we'd go to the bank and say, there's been a problem. And the response is, no, there isn't. We don't make mistakes. And then you'd have to argue and fight and waste time to get it fixed. We've learned. Just put it to the side. Don't use it. And sooner or later, they'll, they'll figure out what's going on and they'll fix it themselves. I don't have to waste any of my time trying to fix it. And maybe I'm lucky and maybe I'll accrue interest on the $100,000 they put into my account, my mistake. Um, here's another one, the credit card rejection again. Le Redoute Mail Order and Company is basically trying to accept orders from clients on the 8th of June, 2000. Why it's happening at that particular point in time, I'm not sure. Some of the year 2000 problems didn't happen immediately. Some of them took a couple of months to ripple through the system. Or because of some fix, they all didn't happen on January the 1st. They happened during a processing cycle. This was the standard credit card rejection once again. Credit cards are going to come up a lot. Basically, the expiry date problem. It's expiring in 05. That means it expired in 1905. That means I'm going to reject your card. And as long as the computer is working it this way, as long as it's seeing the 05 as, 19, uh, as 1905, there's nothing you as an operator can do other than say, you know, do you have any cash? <laughs> can you pay it with cash? We'll take, we'll take a check, but our credit card system isn't working right now. This one uh, will be appreciated. Uh, January the 14th, the Kremlin press office is shut down. Y2K uh, affected the Russian communications system, and the Kremlin's press office couldn't work. It was down for a couple of days. Um, they, weren't being able, they, they weren't able to get on Facebook, I guess. Large one, Berlin Fire Department. This is uh, Sunday, June, the 2000 time frame. Uh, they couldn't, and who knows again why it was out that time. Uh, it was, no, hold on, this was a little bit past um, New Year's Eve. And what they had done, in the last episode, we discussed a whole bunch of different ways of solving the problem. We talked about windowing and time warping and everything else. One of the ones I didn't mention because it was so weird that it, it wasn't used that often. What the Berlin Fire Department tried to do was they added on another month to 1999. Don't ask me how they do that. Um, I mean, I suppose I could sit down as a programmer and figure out how that might work. But they gave 1999 13 months instead of 12. Don't ask me what the 13th month was called. I don't know. And on the night of this problem, Berlin Fire Department, you know, year 2000, they were, there were some fires, and they were trying to send out the notifications to the different fire departments, said, you know, send a truck to this location, there's a fire. But the 
Berlin, the fire departments weren't receiving the notifications, so they weren't sending the trucks out. Not only that, there was also a problem where the system itself didn't know which trucks were available. So it didn't know which trucks were available. And when it was sending out notices, it wasn't getting to the place it needed to get to. And fire, uh, policemen actually had to go bang on the door of the fire department and say, well, what are you guys doing in there? You're playing cards? There's a fire at this location. Will you go out and take care of it? Because the communication system wasn't working properly. Did anybody die? I don't know. Uh, and it, it's sort of irrelevant. Fire departments need to get to fires. And if they don't, the risk of death and you know all that stuff is higher. It has to work. Well, in this situation, it didn't. And why didn't it? Because of a Y2K problem. Not any other problem, but the thing that everybody says was a hoax and a scam, this was the result. Fire trucks weren't getting to fires. National Health Services. This one, I think, is one of the sadder ones uh, there's a whole bunch of ethics and morality issues around this one, but let's describe it. National Health Services in the UK, they're using a diagnostic tool. Here we go again, right? They're using a medical diagnostic tool, and this particular one is trying to determine whether or not a woman uh, during pregnancy has a risk, a high risk of giving birth to a Downs baby. Now, this is where the ethics and morality comes in, and that's not the issue here. The issue here is whether or not the information coming from a computer, in this case a diagnostic tool, is reliable or not. Because of the way the diagnostic tool was accessing and interpreting the woman's age, this happened in the year 2000, they were making incorrect diagnoses about whether or not the women had a Downs baby or not. Incorrect diagnoses were given to 150 different women. That's been verified. Four Downs syndrome cases went undetected, and two of those went to full term and two were aborted. That's where the ethics and morality comes in, and we're not going to get into that here. Both types of errors were made. There were false positives, i.e. you have a Downs baby, but you don't really. That was the error. And the other ones were false negative. You don't have a Downs baby when you actually did. According to one report I read, one woman who was given a false positive aborted the child. The child was not a Downs baby. Again, don't want to get into the ethics and morality of this um, the long other discussion, but the, the nut of the problem here is when you're relying on a diagnostic tool to inform your decision-making process, that diagnosis has to be correct. And this is a situation where it is not correct. By the way, this report became available on September the 10th, 2001. If you get onto Google and you Google the following, NHS for National Health Services, Pathlan, which is the name of the company, P-A-T-H-L-A-N, Downs, D-O-W-N-S, Y2K, PDF. You will get the report that was released on September the 10th, 2001. If you've never heard of it, that's sort of understandable, because on September the 11th, 2001, something else took over the airwaves for the next couple of months. So this is a Y2K problem that happened. Uh, for the people affected by it, it was tragic. And you could actually look at the code. The report actually has the lines of code where you can see exactly where the Y2K problem was and how little it would have taken to fix it. This is the thing myself and everybody else was trying to avoid throughout the entire decade we were talking about this problem. We knew that Y2K would cause bad data, bad results. We didn't know, nor could we predict how that would result, how it would present itself.
This is one of the examples of how it presented itself. Basically, people making life and death decisions based upon bad data, the source of which was Y2K. Okay. Now, in addition to the problems that occurred, it's really important that we look at the problems that we found that we fixed, and therefore they didn't occur. And this was the whole purpose of Y2K. Find the problems and fix them. Now, one of the problems in Y2K is that not everybody is willing to talk about the things that happened, talk about what they found. And the reason for that is understandable. You don't tell people that your systems are unsafe because they lose trust in you. So it is very, very difficult sometimes to figure out exactly what problems were fixed because people don't want to talk about it. They've been advised by legal counsel, don't talk about the things that you fixed because you could be liable for lawsuits for various reasons. Okay. British government made a, an admission uh, around 1998. They identified that they had a missile problem, that the missiles they used to defend the UK and the various sites they have around the world would go into fail-safe mode. Now, what that means is, okay, some problem has occurred because of Y2K, and the system at least was smart enough to know that we have a problem. We have a system problem. So what should we do? Well, don't fire the missiles. In other words, even if you'd wanted to fire the missiles, they couldn't have fired the missiles. Some of you are heaving a sigh of relief and say, well, you know, that's good news, Peter. We don't want to be firing missiles. Well, unless you do. If you're firing a missile to take down an incoming missile, then being able to fire it is a really good idea. And the British government admitted that their rapier anti-aircraft missile would have not fired. We fixed that. We didn't have that problem in the year 2000 because we went in and checked, found it, and fixed it. And again, to reiterate the point, that's what Y2K was all about, finding the problems identifying what they would have caused, and then fixing them before they became an issue. Large organization, uh, again, this is again a trivial one, they have a windowing problem. They put a windowing problem into their system, and in 1998, they didn't quite fix it properly, and they were getting some letters being sent out with a dated as 2098. Uh, you can sort of guess where the problem is occurring. It's occurring in the printout program. And they fixed it, and they fixed it before the year 2000 came along. If they hadn't, they, they would have had, well, I don't know, a cosmetic problem at best. Now, that's a small one. And I wanted to mix large and small because some of the problems that we would have encountered would have been trivial. And no one would have cared if some company is sending out a letter that has the wrong date on it. It's no big deal. Not all of them were like that. Here's one that has been very, very honest. The Royal Dutch Shell Trading and Shipping Company. 1998, they put out a report. And they basically said, we have identified problems, Y2K problems, and here's a list of things that would not have worked as we needed them to. Radar, radar system mapping, ballast sensors, which tells you whether or not a ship is leaning too much to the left or too much to the right, too much to port or too much to starboard. Performance monitoring, are we using enough diesel? Are we using it properly? Is the ventilating system on? Is the, you know, the air conditioning system on? Are the uh, air pumps for the internal of the ship, are they functioning? All of that would have been toast. They identified that. They have gas carrier computer systems, basically reporting things like pressure and temperature of gas in tanks. And if that's incorrect, that can cause problems. They have flow metering problems, fire alarm problems, and climate control problems. Now, when they're saying problems, what they're saying is, if we don't fix this, these are the systems we will not have in the year 2000. And they went out and fixed them. I worked with one oil company, uh, North Sea Oil Fields, and can't give their name, sort of under non-disclosure on it. And they had to do with the flow metering that was mentioned below. And basically, at the bottom of the North Sea, there are pipes. There are pipes coming in from the oil rigs and moving pipe, uh, moving oil onto the rigs and onto the land. 
And those pipes have sensors. And the sensors are giving two things. Pressure, well, a couple of things. Pressure, speed of flow, and temperature of whatever it is that's in the pipe. Now, when they looked at the data, they determined that when it's coming up, when it's being processed, it was using a two-digit year. Now, going down and fixing the sensors was out of the question. That would have been a multi-million dollar job, and they simply did not have enough time to do that. So they identified a problem in the data flow from the sensors at the bottom of the North Sea, and they said, we have to fix that. Because if they didn't fix that, then there was a good chance of blowouts on the seafloor. In other words, they might have lost the North Sea oil fields. Not insignificant by any stretch of the imagination. But since they identified the problem, and they identified it around 1998, I was actually in a meeting up in Scotland when we're discussing this. And they said, you know, we can fix this the following way. Once we get the data in 2000, because we know what date it is, because we know when the data is being collected, we know what year it is. So we will modify the data once we get it into our system. And this is how we're going to do that. We couldn't fix the devices. The devices are still sending up two-digit years. But we know how to interpret that properly. And again, the key here is if they had not found that, if they had trusted the data coming from the sensors, they being the computers now, there would have been miscalculations. What exactly the result of that would have been? To be honest, we don't know. Again, we don't always know how errors in data will affect a program. We do not know how it will present. The nuclear power station that we mentioned earlier, uh, it presented by dumping radioactive stuff into a stream. How would this one have presented? We don't know. We have no clue. What we do know is it was a really good idea to fix it before anything happened. Uh, there was another one, a satellite orbital predictor piece of software. They were doing testing. 1998, they determined that if they don't fix this, they will lose track of satellites. Uh, that's sort of significant, especially if you're tracking GPS satellites and all the rest, and if you lose track of them, they're really difficult to find. They're tiny and big as space is big, vast, huge. And if we don't know where something is, it's really hard to track it down. If the data is not correct, we lose the stuff. They fixed it. They identified it and fixed it. If they hadn't fixed it, who knows? Uh, here's a funny one. A lot of people back in the 1990s, 1970s, when a spouse dies, well, okay, fine, they bury the, bury the spouse, and they put up a tombstone for the spouse, born this year, you know, died this year. And because they, we have this thing, society has this thing of you know, being buried next to your loved ones, they say, okay, this is where the plot's going to be, and let's prepare the tombstone. And they have things like, born 1955, died 19 blank. <laughs> and of course, um, that doesn't mean that you're obligated to die um, in the 1900s. It, it really isn't. It's not an obligation. But they had to go back and recarve tombstones because the person lived past the year 2000. Uh, I find that amusing. And of course, that's the Monty Python skit. I'm not dead yet. Now let's get to the aftershocks. The after the shocks are the things that started happening uh, this well between the year 2000 and 2020. Here's a big one. In 2001, of all dates, September the 31st, 2000, Norwegian trains stopped. Uh, some of them stopped for a little while. Others were canceled entirely. Other ones, they had to get older trains in. Why? <sighs> Who knows? They had a date handling problem. It was a Y2K problem. And on the day, they have no idea what's going on. But they had to go in and do something. Otherwise, the train wouldn't start. Peter, that makes no sense. <laughs> I know that. It makes no sense that this would happen. And 
trying to figure out why it happened on December the 31st, 2000, rather than January the 1st, 2000, is another mystery. The only way you're going to find out what exactly happened is if you go to the Norwegian train company and say, okay, show me the code. Help me understand. But this was widely reported. And this is happening in 2001, well, December 31st, 2000, a year after. 7-Eleven in uh, 2001 has a credit card problem. Again, 2001, not 2000, 2001 it has a credit card problem. And it's exactly the same problem. Credit cards, again. Expiry dates, again. And nowhere in 7-Eleven were they able to use the credit cards for a couple of days until they go in and fix the problem. Some of these are very, very small problems, as in small in time. But if you're 7-Eleven, or if you're going to 7-Eleven, and all you have on you is a credit card, how many of you carry money in your pocket these days? I mean, hard cash. Most people don't. You might have 20 bucks in your pocket. So you, you rely on the credit card. And if you can't use your credit card, to you, that's significant. To the company, it's significant, too. They're going to lose a sale. It's also embarrassing. And I find a lot of this stuff just simply embarrassing. I'm an IT professional. I look at this type of error and I just sort of scratch my head and roll my eyes and say, you know, why? We couldn't figure this out? Our testing didn't cover this? But it happens all the time. Here's another one. Uh, planning and control systems. 2010, we have a problem. And this is obviously a windowing problem where they're using a 10-year window. But this is, called, this is from... Um, Planning and control system, the EDI module, which is the electronic data interchange module, has been used as a way of fixing data. And what they're doing is every instance of 2010, the correct date, is being changed to 1910. Why? I don't know. Who's on first? Why is it doing that? I have no clue. It doesn't matter. It's a windowing problem that has broken down once again. And the thing about the windowing problem, and this was said in the episode we're talking about the solutions, is windowing was a temporary solution. It was not intended to work forever. It was intended to be modified before you get to the end of the window. This is one example, there are many, where it wasn't. Here's another one, spam assassin. A lot of you use it to manage the spam coming into your system. On 24th of January 2010, it has a problem. It's identifying all the mail for 2010 as spamish. Why? In the program, they've identified that if a piece of email has a date equal to 2010, the 2010 is hard-coded, by the way. It actually, you can see it in the code. If the date matches 2010, then it is likely spam because it's not a real date. That's what this program is doing. And again, not the end of the world that is saying, hey, this might be spam, but it's annoying. And the system isn't supposed to work like this. I mean, you wouldn't buy it if you were told, hey, you know, this program is going to tell you that all your mail in 2010 is spam. Do you want to buy this? You know, give us your money. Uh, Splunk. Now, to be fair to Splunk, uh, Splunk is a data monitoring system. It's the easy way, easiest way to describe it. They have a 20-year window. And in December of last year, they were sending out notices to say, hey, folks, you need to patch this. You need to install this patch. If you don't, then your data will be corrupted. So I can't fault Splunk, except maybe the fact that it has to be patched. Maybe it should be hard. Maybe it should be coded into the system to be self-patching, to self-accommodate the advance of the years. Uh, if you didn't apply the, pa the patch then, and you were using Splunk, then you had a problem. Um, th this one is more significant. Uh, New Orleans uh, NOAA monitoring stations, they had a date problem. It wasn't a Y2K problem, to be fair. This is the only one that I've mentioned in this aftershocks. It wasn't Y2K, but it was a date problem. And 19 monitoring stations just stopped working. And you had to, they had to go out and find them. Well, they knew where they were. They had to go out and fix them. But 19 of them were out of commission because of some 
unrelated to Y2K, but it was definitely a date problem. Basically, it was another field overflow situation, uh, which makes no sense. I've read the, the study, the report on it, and none of it really makes any sense. I'd actually have to see the code to understand what was going on. Um, this is one of the bigger ones. January this January of this year, January the 2nd, 2020, 95 trains in Hamburg stopped working. And it has been identified as a Y2K problem. Uh, 95 trains stopped. When you pulled into the station, and if you turned off the train, when you tried to start it up again, it wouldn't work. And it was it's been identified as Y2K. And they had to go back in and fix it. Again, it was a windowing problem. Now, you can't tell me that Y2K isn't an issue when 95 trains are no longer moving passengers around a company, around a country. Um, here's another one. This was one of the first ones I heard about this year. The New York City parking meters. On January the 1st, 2020, they stopped accepting credit cards. Again, a windowing problem. Now, how many of these were there? There were 14,000 of these parking meters, and they couldn't be fixed um, wirelessly. In other words, you just couldn't send out a signal to these things to fix it. The, they had to actually go out, not a meter made, but they had to send a technician out to all 14,000 of these things to make a essentially a hardware change. My guess is they pulled out an EEPROM and put in an EEPROM, the erasable programmable memory, uh, basically a chip. They replaced the chip. Now, there have been some indications that this was a security measure. Uh, that makes no sense. This was a windowing problem. Uh, they knew it would happen on 2020, and despite knowing it, they didn't go out and fix it. Now, how costly was that to New York City Parking Authority? Well, it was down for a couple of days, uh, more than a week, I'm told. 14,000 parking meters. How much money does 14,000 parking meters collect over a couple of days? That money's gone. You're not going to get it back. Plus, how many hours, people hours, resource hours does it take to send someone out, someone, a team, out to 14,000 parking meters to make the check, make the change? Here's another one. Uh, over in Poland, most of the cash registers are, die, uh, are dead. Uh, they're fixing them now. Basically, they stopped printing receipts, which was absolutely mandatory. Cash registers in Poland are mandated by the government. You have to have a cash register if you're a retail outlet. Why? It cuts down on the corruption that was happening where people weren't paying the sales tax, et cetera, et cetera. So you had to have it. Now, what, the way to fix this, no one's going to go out to your store to fix it. You have to send the cash register back to the shop to have them fix it in the shop. Then they will send it back to you, and you can reinstall it. There was another complication. There was a legality involved in that it was against the law to modify the cash register after it had been verified by the government. I have no idea how that resolved itself. This is still an ongoing issue. Most of the problems that we're encountering, I would say all of the problems that we're encountering in 2020, have to do with the windowing, which was less costly, less time consuming, but it was definitely a kludge. It was a patch that we added to the programs. It was data dependent, and we've seen the results of that. And it was also temporary. And the key word here is it was temporary. That means we had to fix it before 2020 happened, and we didn't. Uh, the next big batch of this is going to be 2025, where we will see the 2025 window, and then the 30, and then pretty much that'll be the end of it. And then we may have a different set of problems, but the next windowing problem will be 2025. The summary of all of this, we depend upon our systems to tell us what to do. And... If you can lose a warehouse because the logistics program has just dropped the address, then you can lose anything. If you can dump radioactive material into a stream because the computer program is doing something, we depend upon that computer to work properly. If your business all of a sudden can't accept credit cards, that is a financial blow to your system.
and an annoyance to the user. We depend upon our computer systems, and we don't seem to give enough attention to that. In other words, we don't say, look, we really depend upon this. That means we cannot let it fail. We don't match the level of attention to the level of dependency. We simply don't do that. We don't know how our systems work. Not really. When a system says this thing needs to be sent to the dump because it's expired, we just take it at its word. We don't know how it's determining that. When it says your blood work is fine, we don't know that it's assuming that you're two years old. We assume that it's giving you the right information. When you do a Downs test and it gives you the result, you act upon the result given. It needs to be correct. We make this weird separation, in my mind anyway. We separate computer error from human error. When in actuality, we have to stop thinking of it as humans on one side and computer on the other side. And what we have to start thinking of is, this is a system. One component of the system is the human component. The other one is the computer component. And those two things have to cooperate together. They have to work together. It's a system. And if either part fails, the system has failed. Not the human has failed and point fingers at the human, or not the computer has failed and point fingers at the, the computer. It's the system has failed. And we need to start by designing and making better systems. We're not there yet. And the bottom line is we're not very, very good at fixing the things that we don't understand. When you're going in to try and fix a system and you're actually making it worse, that means you really do, we really don't know what it is we're doing when we're messing about in the innards of the system. Folks, that's my summary, and I don't think I'll be going back to all the different Y2K problems. I, I don't think we'll do that again, although we might. Who knows what happens? This is part of our ongoing Y2K and autobiography podcast series. My guess is it's going to be about a dozen episodes over the months. Uh, the premium content is available at www.vimeo.com slash on demand, O-N-D-E-M-A-N-D -E -E slash Y2K. If you go there, then you can see the video component of the presentations you're likely listening to on Podbean or iTunes. There is a video component behind everything. There are weekly interviews from people who actually worked on these projects. One of the ones we had here, already is John Koskinen, the Y2K czar. We'll be having other people from other notables, luminaries from various places. And if you want to contact me, you can do so at pdager, that's P-D-E-J-A-G-E-R, at technobility.com. Technobility is spelled T-E-C-H-N-O-B-I-L-I-T-Y. And the last part is .com. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, issues, da 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 that's how you contact me. Get them to me, and uh, they may feature in a future episode. And with that, um, good luck. Be good until the next session. And the next one, I think we're going to be talking about Y2K, a tale of two stories. Take care, folks. Be good.